Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. James chapter 5. Uh, we are nearing the end of our journey through the, uh, the, the uh, epistle of James. I was going to say gospel, but um, next week our very own Jer Swigert will be here with us to wrap up uh, chapter 5. And then the following two weeks after that, as we kind of dive into a new school year, uh, we're going to take a little pause and kind of recalibrate and reorient ourselves around the unique vision and mission that God has given us uh, as a church to kind of dive into this next school year, and I'm so excited to do that together. But for this morning, uh, we will focus in on these several verses in James chapter 5, and basically there's two questions that I want to try to address uh, this morning during the teaching. And the first is, what was the early Christian understanding of Christ's return And the second question is, how does the promise of Christ's return help us face life's hardest moments and seasons with a courageous endurance? And so as we come to this passage, the first question is really designed to help catch us up with where James' original hearers or readers would have been as in terms of the working understanding they have of the second coming of Jesus. And then the second question really engages us in understanding what it is that he would say uh, to us as well. And so uh, we'll dive into this first question of what's the early Christian understanding of Christ's return. So you'll see right here in the text in verses 7 and 8, James uses this phrase several times, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. The word coming in the, in the original Greek is parousia, parousia. And it's the word that means coming, advent, presence, arrival. It's a doctrine that the early Christians would have shared that has to do with their understanding that one day Jesus would return to the earth, that he would come, that he would arrive, that his presence would once again dwell on earth with his people. And so this idea of parousia is really central to our understanding of the Christian story, of the Christian gospel, and therefore of the invitation of that gospel as well. Now I'll acknowledge, let's just pause for a moment and go, As we start talking about topics related to the second coming, end times, Jesus' return, the book of Revelation, some of us get super weirded out around this stuff, right? And maybe you've had some bad traumatic experiences in youth group or something uh, dealing with these kinds of topics. And for some of us, we just go, yeah, that's probably part of what Christians should believe, but it's just not that big of a deal, so why do we have to spend time uh, talking about it? And let me just give you real quickly three reasons why I think we should give some time to talking about this idea of the second coming of Christ. The first is that the Bible spends a lot of time talking about it. In specific, the New Testament contains over 300 references to the parousia of Jesus' return to the earth. Almost every single one of the New Testament authors includes it uh, within their writings. And so 300 references would 
equal out to about one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament has to do with this thought and practice of Christians who are anticipating the arrival of the Lord in the world. And so if it's central to the thinking and the living of biblical authors, then it ought to be for us as well. Secondly, the doctrine of parousia, the return of Christ, is one of the earliest and most fundamental beliefs of Christianity. This isn't a belief that like came later on after centuries of development. This is one of the first things that followers of Jesus rallied around and agreed upon, that Christ was going to come again. And so this isn't something that just some Christians hold to or some certain kind of Christian believes in. Like every Christian tradition, denomination, generation holds to the belief that Christ somehow, some way, someday, will return uh, to the earth. And so if you remember when we studied through the Apostles' Creed last fall, we got to the line at one point that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And we looked to the Apostles' Creed as an early summary of the essential truths of the Christian faith. And so this isn't just some peripheral kind of odd or weird idea when it comes to understanding what the Bible teaches. It's really central, and it's been shared by Christians for centuries now. And it's one of the beliefs that unites us together to Christ's greater body around the world and throughout history. And so we want to hold on to it as well. And then finally, the reason why I think it's important to talk about these things is simply the observation that what we believe about the future deeply shapes the way we live in the present. So another word I'll teach you this morning that may be new for some of you is eschatology. Eschatology within theology is the study of things that are to come, of the second coming, of where the story of human history is headed under God's authorship. And Everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, a person of faith or not, has an eschatology. Every person has a working view of where things are going in the world, where the world is headed. And it's one of the most fascinating parts within human societies and cultures is understanding how that view, that eschatological narrative, shapes people in ways we don't even know. So think about all the different uh, stories, novels, movies, TV shows that have to do with this imagined future. A lot of times it's this dystopian world where there's been like some great nuclear fallout or biochemical or environmental uh, catastrophe. The earth has been destroyed and survivors are left fighting zombies or whatever it is to try to rebuild society. We have tons of shows and movies particularly about this dystopian vision of the future. Or on the other hand, we have another genre that imagines a utopian future where humanity and technology have evolved to such a place where we've now created this world that's beautiful and wonderful and clean and functional and safe. And so dystopian and utopian visions of the future, these are both what we would call eschatological worldviews. And everyone, again, has an eschatology, a working view of where we believe history is headed. And most of us probably don't spend a whole lot of time contemplating the end of the world on a regular basis, but I would argue again that what we believe about the future radically shapes the way we live in the present. 
And so, scripture, the history of the church, and the reality of our present day, three reasons that we ought to, as followers of Jesus, spend time considering what the Bible teaches about the second coming of Christ. And so again, back to this first question, what is it that the early Christians, particularly the readers of James' uh, writing here, would have understood, or what did James assume his readers understood about the return of Christ? And before we dive into that, I want to acknowledge for a moment that there are God-fearing, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians who land very different places when it comes to this conversation. All Christians, like I said, believe in the second coming, but there's lots of different perspectives on when that coming is, what's the nature of that coming, what it looks like, what it means, what it's going to be, and that sort of thing. And so to a certain degree, that's okay. I would hold eschatology mostly in an open-handed category, meaning it's one of those things that Christians can disagree on to a certain extent and still be brothers and sisters in Christ, still be in fellowship together, still worship together, still live on mission together, still love our neighbors together. It's okay if people believe different things than we do. They can be wrong. That's no problem. We'll still love them. So... Um, Today, particularly within the United States and the various expressions of the Christian faith that exist in our world, there are really two prominent sets of belief when it comes to uh, thinking about Christ's return. Two different sets of belief that I would argue have um, their roots in two really different stories and have two really different emphases that would lead us, if we take them seriously, down two very different paths of Christian belief and practice. And so these two main groups of, of teaching, one of them is very, very new, and the other one is very, very old. The two categories, I would argue, are rapture and resurrection. Rapture and resurrection. We'll talk about rapture here for a moment. So if you come from an evangelical background, particularly an American evangelical upbringing, then chances are that when people start talking about the second coming of Christ, you have been taught to associate that with this idea of a rapture. The idea that at some point in the future when Jesus returns as he's promised, that he's going to come on a rescue mission to remove or to rapture all of his people from the earth and take us away to a place called heaven. And the rest of the world then will be left behind to uh, face the tribulation of God's wrath. Now, there's two particular scriptures that often get used to support the theory of rapture. The first is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and the second is in Matthew chapter 24. And both of those have to do, one with Paul, one with Jesus, describing what it is that's going to happen at the parousia, at the coming of Christ. And so for many of us, the first story that we associate with the idea of Christ's coming is the story of rapture. Now, remember how I said one of these stories is really old and one of them is really new. Which one do you think the rapture is? It's very, very new relatively within the history of Christian teaching. The idea of rapture was first introduced in the 1820s. The 1820s, 1800 years after the time of Christ, Bible teacher, an Irish guy by the name of John Nelson Darby, um, this is almost 200 years ago now, uh, 
comes up with kind of this theory or this interpretation uh, of the parousia. And then in 1909, there's a study Bible published by C.I. Schofield, a guy who bought into Darby's work, and he unleashed this thing called the Schofield Study Bible just a little over 100 years ago. A little over 100 years ago, the first mainstream appearance of the idea of rapture occurs in Christian literature. You can still find those. Many of you have those, the Darby Bible, the Schofield Bible, that sort of thing. Um, It's very, very new, just within the last couple hundred years. But what's happened is since then, this idea or story of rapture has really taken off, particularly, like I said, amongst American evangelicals. Now, what's interesting is if you pan out a little bit and get a bigger picture of global Christian theology, European Christians really haven't bought in, never bought in to the idea of rapture, along with the Catholic, Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran, um, and Calvinist movements, they've never really held to it. But American evangelicals, for whatever reason, over the last hundred years have really uh, eaten it up. Some of you guys were around in the 70s when Hal Lindsey published The Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody remember that? Okay, a few of and you're still here. That's great. Um, and uh, then in the 90s, of course, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins unleashed the Left Behind series, which sells tens of millions of copies and goes on to become major motion pictures featuring our favorite Christian actor, Kirk Cameron. And now, for some reason, Nick Cage is in the conversation as well. So I haven't read any of those books or watched any of those movies, so I'm not speaking authoritatively on any of that, and I'm okay with that. But from what I understand, the nature of the narrative is this kind of really dystopian reality where one day Jesus comes like a thief in the night and raptures all the Christians away to heaven. And, of course, what happens to the pilot who's flying the plane? Um, Interesting story. So if you want to engage it as literature, that's fine. If you want to engage it as theology, that's not fine. So um, if you come out of an environment where this idea of pre-tribulation rapture was part of the deal, then you know all about this. And I... Um, Again, I don't want to be dismissive or divisive to those uh, within the greater body of Christ that would hold to this idea, Um, but I personally just find there's so much good material when it comes to examining this idea of rapture. If you've seen the bumper stickers that say, warning, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned, right? Classic Christian swag. Or the classic Christian youth group uh, prank where one kid leaves the room and then all the other kids leave their clothes, um, uh, like scattered around, and the other kid comes and thinks that he's been left behind. Um, Evangelism in the 80s, how can we scare the hell out of little kids at camp? I know, (laughs) let's pretend there's a rapture. If you go today to raptureready.com, I checked it this morning just to make sure we have the updated list. Uh, Our rapture index is at a 185, which uh, if you'll see down on the bottom right, the all-time high is a 189. So we are, which looks like it was right before the election. Um, (laughs) So they use these 45 different categories, including unemployment, inflation, Israel, Gog, um, parentheses, Russia, 
floods, famine, civil rights, and kind of up they say it's, you know, it's really uh, like a Dow Jones industrial average of end time activity, if you want to think of it that way. And so we are at a 185. Um, I want you to keep that in mind as we move through the morning. Um, and maybe you're just asking, Pete, did anybody go for the low-hanging fruit and name their Christian rap group the Raptures? They did. You are correct in that assumption. The Raptures came out in 1990 uh, with this album, Loud, Proud, and Born Again. And my 10-year-old self highly recommends it to you. Uh, the last one I have to show you is a short little video, and it really has to do with the most important question when it comes to eschatology. What happens to our pets? <laughs> and this is not a joke. Are you a Christian pet owner wondering what might happen to your pets when Jesus comes back to take you away in the rapture? Maybe you've already made plans for it, but if not, Rapture Pet Care is here to help. Our website is a database of both Christian pet owners who will no longer be around when the rapture comes and atheist pet lovers who are not going anywhere anytime soon, but would love to take care of those same Christian pets. For Christians, simply register for an account at rapturepetcare.com. Enter your zip code and the pets you need cared for and let our database match you up with an atheist pet lover nearby. You'll have peace in the afterlife knowing that your pets are being well cared for. For atheists, simply enter your zip code and the type of pets you're willing to care for while you're sticking around for a while, and we'll show you all the pets that will soon be available in your area. Registration and full use of the site will always be free, because soon enough, we won't be needing your money anyway. RapturePetCare.com because all dogs don't go to heaven. <laughs> oh my gosh. The point I'm trying to make is that this story inevitably goes to some weird places where when we consider the promises of the scripture that Christ will come again, the path that leads us down inevitably is, yeah, but who's going to feed my ferret once I'm raptured? Very, very strange reality. And so again, I don't mean to slam too hard those Christians that hold to rapture theology, but I just, uh, I just don't think it's a faithful reading of the scriptures. It's not what Jesus or Paul or James or the other New Testament writers were talking about when they talked about the second coming of Christ. It's a very recent development. And most problematic of all for me is asking the question, where does rapture theology lead? What are the implications and the outworkings of a community of people that believe this is where human history is headed? So if you believe that in the future Jesus is going to come and snatch up all his people and take them away to heaven, and then God's going to pour out his wrath on earth, then how would that shape the way you live today? It's going to shape the way you live today, right? How would that eschatology shape the way you see the world, the way you see poverty and injustice, the way you see racism and disease, the way you see the poor and oppressed, the way you see the non-human elements of God's creation? How would it affect the way that you treat others or even treat your own body or the way you treat the planet? There's a common phrase uttered amongst rapture-believing Christians that says, it's all going to burn. 
It's all going to burn. What are they saying? Don't get too attached. Don't get too invested in the things of earth because one day soon we're all out of here and it's all going to burn. And so what that means then is that anybody that's investing themselves in this world in trying to care for those in this world, in trying to steward this creation, in trying to make this place a better place, is essentially polishing the bell on a sinking ship. They're rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. What's the point of investing in this planet and in these people if one day it's all just going to burn? It would cause us to look at poverty, injustice, pain, terrorism, brokenness, environmental issues, and go, yeah, it's kind of a bummer, but one day Jesus is going to take us all away and this place is going to disappear forever. Now, I can take some funny shots at this, and believe me, I'm just getting started, but I'm trying to be good. (laughs) But there's actually some deeper problems that this kind of thinking leads to. And I'll be honest for a moment, um, in addition to the church that I grew up in where my father was the pastor, in my high school years, I also became deeply involved in another church that had a very high rapture theology. And was, they were constantly talking about this idea that these are the end times, these are the last days, that this world is This life is but a vapor. This world is going to pass away. And one day Jesus is going to come and snatch us all up. And that day is coming soon. As a 17, 18-year-old kid, that thinking actually had a significant impact on the decisions I made moving into adulthood. It's embarrassing to admit, but it's one of the reasons I never went to college Because why would you go to college if Jesus is coming and he's going to take us away? It doesn't matter. None of this matters. Don't prepare for a career. Don't be thinking long term about what you're going to do with your life. Live in this moment. Like really, if this was your last day on the planet, you're going to enroll in college? It's logical if you believe it. And it's been, for me, almost 20 years now of detoxing from some rapture theology And I'm not mad. I'm a little mad. (laughs) But this is serious stuff because what we believe about tomorrow affects how we live today. And so I think as followers of Jesus who know the heart of Christ, if we are becoming a people who don't care about this life, don't care about this world, don't care about the poor, don't care about God's creation... Um, this is not leading us to the life that Christ has called us to, a life of love, forgiveness, justice, redemption, proclaiming a gospel that truly is good news of great joy for all people. So Johnny Cash famously said that some people are are so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. That's my first problem with the rapture. I just don't think it's helpful in helping us become people who bear the image of Jesus in the world. Now, I do get the appeal of it. If Jesus is coming to take us all away, then I don't have to get involved in this world. I don't have to care about the poor or the least of these or anyone else. Um, But if this world matters, this good world that God created still matters, then I actually have to get my hands dirty. 
So when it comes to our question of what did early Christians believe about the second coming of Christ, I want to emphasize they did not believe in rapture. This is not what Jesus or Paul or Peter or John or James were talking about. When they pictured the end of the world as we know it, it didn't have to do with us being caught away and going away to heaven. But rather, it had to do with resurrection. Rapture is the very, very new story. Resurrection is a really, really old story. It's as old as the faith itself. Look at Revelation chapter 21, which we don't know all that's going on here, but we do know that there's this vision that Jesus gives his closest friend and disciple, John, and says, I want to give you a glimpse of that day when I return. I want to give you a picture to show you something of what is going to happen upon my second arrival in the world. Revelation 21, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her, for her husband. Let's pause for just a moment there and just make this very simple observation. At the end of the story, what we don't see is Jesus taking people away from earth up to heaven. What we very clearly see, even in its symbolic and apocalyptic language, is Jesus bringing heaven to earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And there's all kinds of theories and ideas about what happens between now and then. And that's where we can debate. But at the end of the story, this is the picture. Not Jesus taking Christians away to heaven, but Jesus bringing the city, the kingdom, and the life of God to earth. And what does that look like when Jesus comes in his glory and brings heaven to earth, move on in the passage. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What a beautiful, compelling vision. What if... Even if you can't believe this story, what if you could? What if you could believe that one day this is where human history is headed? A world with no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. A world with no more cancer, no more war, no more abuse, no more AIDS, no more suicide, no more terrorism, no more pollution or rape. What if we believe that all the broken and evil and wicked and corrupt stuff of the world we know would one day be done away with? And in its place, Jesus would establish his kingdom, and it's a kingdom marked by love, by truth, by beauty, where everything is as it should be where all of the needs of humanity and the rest of the creation are fulfilled to overflowing, 
where the relationships we have with God and ourselves and one another and the rest of creation are rightly ordered, are finally fulfilled. And so it's not just that the problems out there are done away with, but the problem that is in here is done away with as well. At the center of God's new world is Jesus sitting on a throne with his people. Where? Not somewhere in outer space. Here, in a renewed heaven and earth, in this very place. It's given an extreme makeover, heaven and earth edition. So much so that you can barely recognize parts of it. But nonetheless, it's not new construction, it is renovation. And it happens here in this place. And so the hope that the biblical writers have when it comes to their eschatology, their belief about where human history is headed, is based on this belief that God hasn't given up on this world. That the whole gospel story of God leaving heaven in his son Christ, coming to this world, becoming one of us, living among us, dying for us, rising for us, sending his spirit, the point of that story isn't to get us away from here, but to bring himself closer to us. That this world still matters. That your neighbor still matters. Your life still matters. The planet still matters. The poor still matter. That's where this story goes. So the New Testament, then, is building on ancient biblical imagery, prophecy, and visions, visions of the creator, God, making the world new again. And what happens in our hope as followers of Jesus is that this second coming is nothing but good news. That everything broken and bad and rotten and sinful about this world is done away with. And instead, Jesus establishes a love, a kingdom marked by love, and that world is the world that we all long for, the world that we dream of. And so, if I haven't said it clearly yet, rapture, resurrection, which story did the early Christians hold to when it comes to their understanding of the second coming? It's the story of resurrection. And Paul talks about it like this, that whatever it is that God did when he raised his son Jesus from the dead, that first Easter, that's what he's going to do for the rest of creation. He's going to raise the dead in this place. And we each get a little Easter of our own. And so when the Bible talks about the second coming of Christ... Don't think rapture, think resurrection. The reconciliation of all things. God remodeling, remaking, renovating the heavens and the earth to the world that we all long for. And it happens here. The second question that I want to address just briefly has to do with if that's what Christians believe was the nature of Christ's coming, resurrection, reconciliation, then what did they believe about its timing? When was it going to happen? And you'll see here in James chapter 5 in those same verses again. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And so James is writing to a group of early Christians who believed that Jesus' return was imminent, meaning that this story of resurrection, of return, of reconciliation, it could happen at any moment. And in fact, lots of Christians seemed to believe that that return of Christ was going to happen within their own lifetime. And they had good reason to believe so, because listen to the language of Scripture. Christ's return is near. It's standing at the door. It's not distant and far away. It's right in front of us. It could happen. It could break in at any moment. And if we even go back to Revelation, the very final words uh, of this story, red letters in Revelation chapter 22, three times in the final chapter, Jesus himself declares in this vision to John, look, I am coming soon. Verse 12, look, I'm coming soon. Verse 20, yes, I am coming soon. And so early Christians rightfully, logically believed that the return of Christ could happen at any moment. Now, to state the obvious, it's been over 2,000 years, and this hasn't happened yet. So what do we do with that? Were they wrong in thinking that Christ could come back at any moment, in living as if this return was imminent? They weren't wrong. They were, in fact, living in the last days. They just didn't know how long the last days were going to last. Sometimes on this topic, people ask me, do you think that we're living in the last days? And I say, yeah, and we have been for 2,000 years. This is the last part of the story. The next chapter is the return of Christ. There's not another chapter between now and then. So these are the last days. They're just more last than we thought they were going to be. And I would simply just say, the emphasis of any of the writers in Scripture when it comes to guessing or engaging or speaking to the timing of Christ's return, it's really not what they spend their time on. They really don't try to make a case for the date and the time and all that kind of stuff that we should be watching and what's happening with Gog and whatnot, right? What they're interested in is not the timing of Christ's return, but a life of faithfulness. And so we know that not just when it comes to conversations about Christ's return, but those many returns, those many arrivals, those other places where we're asking God to break into our world, when we're pleading with Jesus to show up in my life. How long, O oh Lord, must we wait forever when are you going to come? When are you going to break in? When are you going to show up? When are you going to bring your presence and your life and your healing and your hope from heaven to earth? How long, O oh Lord, when is that going to happen? It's not just this ultimate return we long for. It's the life of God that I need today. The place where I need him to show up and bring resurrection today. And the truth is, when is that going to happen? We don't know. And often, it doesn't happen when we think it should. The prayer isn't answered the way 
we think it should be or when we think it should be. God doesn't break in and show up and make things right the way we want him to or when we want him to. And so this conversation about the end of the world and God showing up in the ultimate sense deeply impacts the way that we would engage with God today in the messy moments and seasons of our lives. And the only other thing I would say about that as it relates to the timing of God's return and God's arrival in the world is that we know from, most, from several places in the scripture it's this idea that God doesn't operate according to the same time scales as we do. And I don't think it's accurate to say God exists outside of time and space. I know what people mean by that, but he created this world and he's involved in it. A world of time and space and he does show up. He just shows up on his own time. In fact, I think the Narnia stories are really helpful for giving a picture of this. The kids go into the wardrobe and spend months or even years in the land of Narnia and when they come back out of the wardrobe, not a moment has passed, right? And it's this reality that God's timing and God's world coinciding, cohabitating our timing, our world, it's always interesting. And so even uh, the voyage of the Don Treader, one last thought, don't look sad. We shall meet again soon, Aslan says as he's leaving the kids. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, what do you call soon? What do you mean by soon? I call all times soon said Aslan, and instantly he was vanished away. I think that's Lewis's way of saying that God doesn't work on the same time scales as we do. And John and Paul and James and Peter and Jesus himself aren't interested in focusing on the timetables. They want us to focus on faithfulness. And so what if this story is true? What if rather than rapture, the story is resurrection? The story is reconciliation. The story is that God hasn't given up on this world or your life and that he is ultimately promised to come back in Christ and bring heaven with him. If that story is true, how would it affect the way that we live in the present or specifically our second and final question for the morning? How does the promise of Christ's return help us face life's hardest moments and seasons with a courageous endurance? Back to James 5, verse 7 and 8. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And so James is making the case that if we have this hope and this vision for where human history is headed, it's going to radically shape the way we live in the present and specifically the way that we face trials, tribulations, suffering, pain, loss. The darkest and most difficult things that we face in the human experience are directly impacted by what we believe about where this story is going. And James makes the statement that if Christ is returning and bringing all of heaven with him, 
than when life is hard and messy and disastrous and painful. We are able to be patient and to stand firm. We are able to persevere. We are able to endure. We're able to make it. In the face of trials, adversity, suffering, and loss, in the hope of resurrection, we find the strength to face today. Theologian Karen Jones says it like this, talking about James. This James adopts a Christocentric, Jesus-centric eschatology where Jesus, king of God's kingdom and teacher of its wisdom, is also the coming judge. And with that eschatological perspective always in view, Christians are to live with courageous endurance until Jesus returns, knowing that they will be fully vindicated as Jesus himself was. And so how does our eschatology strengthen us for today? A couple ways. The first, as she says, if we know that ultimate justice is coming, that God is going to make things right in the world once and for all, then that responsibility does not lie on me. If somebody has hurt me, if somebody has sinned against me, if somebody has taken advantage of me or abused me or just hurt my feelings, it is not my responsibility to make sure they get what they deserve. And we could be talking about you and your dumb coworker, or we could be talking about global level conflicts. I've shared this with you before, but my son Mo, when he was four years old, we were talking about this over breakfast, and he goes, Dad, what would you do if there was no God? And I said, well, I would be really sad, and I'd have to get another job. <laughs> and, he said, and I said, what would you do if there was no God? And Mo goes, I would go out and find all the bad guys and punch them in the eyeball. <laughs> and I said, well, why wouldn't you do that now? And I kid you not, four years old, Mo goes, because if there is a God, then he could take care of the bad guys. Isn't that right, though? That this quest for justice doesn't land on us. Now, of course, we join with God in his vision for it. But we don't place hope and confidence in ourselves and certainly not in any political party or any leader or any nation or any worldview or philosophy thinking ultimately that's going to be the thing that brings about the world we all want. Only Jesus can and will do that. And so we can face life's difficult moments with perseverance, with endurance, and with courageous patience, knowing that one day God's going to make things right. At another level, and this one's hard to articulate, but it just kind of changes things when you know how the story ends. A lot of the TV shows that I watch are maybe a little bit too dark for Jen to enjoy. She's an Enneagram 7 with a 7 wing, likes to have a good time, doesn't like sad, intense shows. And so sometimes when she's watching with me, she'll get on her phone and look how that story is going to end <laughs> so that she doesn't have to be so scared <laughs> in the meantime. Right? That makes sense. 
When you know that there's resolution, redemption, restoration, and resurrection at the end of the story, it changes the way we greet even the worst moments of life. Many of you have been praying for Jen and I as we walk through this journey of cancer with her mom. And the most recent news is not good news. In fact, found 17 new tumors in her abdomen. Basically saying the chemo's not working. And we're hopeful that there's some trials and other things that they can do, but it's the worst kind of news to get. Some of you know exactly what that's like. Now, I'm not saying because Jesus is coming back, we're good. But as we pray, as we cry, as we struggle, as we wrestle, we do it with this hope of knowing that even if cancer wins this battle, it doesn't win the war. We know that one day there will be a world with no more death, no more sickness, no more crying, and no more pain. Yes, I wish that day was today. And so do you. But if it's not, we still know that day's coming. And it doesn't necessarily make life easier. It doesn't call us to be numb or nonchalant or whatever in the face of suffering. In fact, just the opposite. It gives us a courage to plunge into the messiest moments and the hardest parts of life rather than hiding from them, disregarding them, pretending they don't exist, we turn around and we face them because we know in the end they don't win. Now, sometimes that mess, that suffering is external. It's the things that have happened to us. It's the ways we've been affected by this broken world. Other times that pain and suffering is internal. It's the mess I've made with, of my own life. It's my own sin and the consequences I'm living in. Sometimes it's just my own struggle and dysfunction, my own anxiety, my own depression, my own fear, my own anger, my own addiction, whatever it is. All these hard places in life, they're all called up into this vision of saying, these things don't win. Yeah, they're going to hurt you, and they may even kill you but that is not the end of the story. Christ is coming. One of my favorite theologians, Leslie Newbigin, when he was asked once, as he surveyed the changes in modern culture, whether he was optimistic or pessimistic about the way the world was headed, and he answered, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that you know that sometimes life is really hard. The things get messy and complicated. And even beyond that, sometimes there is such deep brokenness and pain and longing within ourselves, within our families, within our communities, within this world, 
that it's easy to just wonder what's even the point. And we thank you that in the midst of whatever it is that we're going through today, that Lord Jesus, you have the last word. And that your kingdom one day will come. And one day things on earth will be as they are in heaven. Literally. And so we wait patiently and expectantly for that day. And at the same time, our hearts lament the brokenness and the pain around us and around the world. This is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not right. This is not how the story ends. So we live with lament. We live with hope. But ultimately, we live in complete trust of you and your coming kingdom. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come, redeem this world. Come, restore all that that's broken. Come, raise the dead. Lord, we can't enough articulate how badly, how deeply we long for you to return. And even today, we pray, Lord, would you give us a glimpse of that incoming kingdom that you would break in amongst us through your body, through your blood, through your bride, through your ever-faithful presence in our lives. We don't have all of you yet, but we have all that we need. And we're hungry and thirsty for more. So even now, this morning, as we come to your table, as we stand in your presence, as we pledge our allegiance to you and to your kingdom, Lord Jesus, would you come? Would you find in us a receptive and hospitable body for you to inhabit by your spirit, a bride to receive you as the groom, that your very life would come and fill us? And would we, as your church, be an embassy of heaven on earth? Would we be a place where the world gets to see what it looks like when Jesus is king. You alone are our hope. You are our future. You are the one we trust every care to as well as the cares of the world. Come, Lord Jesus.